welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is Lesson 37, 3 Nephi 8-11 through Arise and come forth unto me. This is part 2 of Rod discussing uh, Christ visiting the Americas. He ties in more from Samuel the Lamanite into possible events in America that occurred in the 1800s. Could the events in the Book of Mormon be a foreshadowing of what is to come? Has there ever been an earthquake that turned a huge river backwards? Some of this presentation is from an older presentation with Rod, where you'll actually see him with a little different look. But he also ties in some very interesting History Channel footage that illustrates one of the largest faults for earthquakes in the United States. Let me start off by, uh, by talking a little bit about, um, or just, just, just quoting actually. This is a, the article I mentioned in the, in the beginning of the last presentation. And uh, this is an article that was written about seven, eight months ago by uh, Dr. John L. Sorensen, who's kind of the recognized expert on Book of Mormon geography. And, uh, and his, he's obviously uh, very much a proponent of the Mesoamerican setting for the Book of Mormon. But, uh, but in, in this article he wrote, it's called, uh, the article is called A Whole Bunch of Reasons Why Book of Mormon Geography Could Not Have Included North America. And, uh, and he has a list of 37 items that he believes uh, would, uh, would, would make it impossible for the Book of Mormon to have happened actually up here in the heartland of North America. Well, his, uh, his reason that he gives, number 20, I'll just read this to you. It says, it is obvious from the description of the great catastrophe at the crucifixion of the Savior that volcanism must be involved as a natural cause. Uh, of at least the darkness. In eastern North America, that is out of the question. There are no volcanoes there. Now, Dr. Sorensen is actually correct that there are no volcanoes in the eastern part of North America. However, there are volcanoes in the western part of North America, but, uh, but even that, I think it would be a difficult thing to try to uh, justify uh, volcanic eruption you know, in, the, uh, in, the north, in the northwest. Um, would cause the kind of destruction that we talk about in the Book of Mormon in the heartland of North America, if that is in fact where it occurred. And that led to, uh, starting about, about three years ago, some pretty intensive research on what could have caused this destruction at the time of Christ. And uh, what I wanted to do today is uh, take a little bit of time and actually go through and list the things that were actually observed by those who experienced these destructive events that happened in the, in, in, uh, um, in the Book of Mormon. So the first thing we're going to do, and if, the, if you happen to bring your scriptures with you, you're welcome to pull those out, because we're going to be uh, going through it, but, we'll, but we'll, I'll, I'll have the scriptures up on the screen, though, so you can see that as well. Okay. So the first thing we're going to do is actually go to the account in the Book of Mormon. Okay, whoops. Okay, I went back too far here. And we're going to go to 3 Nephi. And we're going to start at chapter 8. Now, let's see if we can get this over here where you can see it. Okay. Now, we're going to start actually on verse 5 right here. So as, you, as you're following along here, you can see, okay, there's the verse 5. 
And what we're going to do, and I've already kind of done this for you, and when we've done the international webinars, it's been really a lot of fun. And in fact, I would encourage you to share this with your families, uh, invite some friends over or whatever, and uh, have them sit down and go through this exercise that we're going to go through together today. And you can easily do it because the information is either in the scriptures or it's on my website. And so you can actually go and watch the, uh, the video clips that are on the video gallery of the website. Or even better yet, if you would like to, we can, you can get a copy of this, uh, this documentary that we're talking about. Uh, we've made arrangements to, uh, to get some copies of that for you, so um, if, you, if you'd like. So um, the first thing we're going to do is, and, and just kind of a, a quick overview, is going to look at the actual observations that were made at the time of Christ. We're going to then look at the actual observations that were made in the heartland of North America in 1811 and 1812 when the largest sequence of earthquakes ever in recorded history happened in North America, right in the heartland. And then we're going to see that those things match, and if they do match, then we're going to see, um, is, was there a similar kind of an event as that that happened in 1811 and 1812 that happened in the heartland of North America closer to the time of Christ and see if there would be an analog for that. Because if we could find that, folks, then we would have the most, the most profound um, support for the claims of the Book of Mormon that I believe that's, that's ever been out there. And uh, so what we're going to do is in the next hour and a half we're going to explore this. So the first thing we're going to do, now on your left hand side, if you're doing this paper, if you're doing this exercise at home, just take a blank piece of paper, put a line down the middle of it, dividing it into two columns. On the left hand side, write down observations from the Book of Mormon. And then turn to 3rd Nephi chapters 8 and 9 and read the destruction accounts. And write down the things that they mention that they actually observed in the 1811-1812, uh, excuse, excuse me, in the Book of Mormon. <clears throat> On the right-hand side, then you put observations from 1811 and 1812. Okay, and I'm going to show you some clips from a documentary. Again, this is a non-Mormon documentary, so you'll, you'll find that uh, that's pretty interesting. Then we'll also take a couple of excerpts from a, new, uh, from a, from a book, which is up, up here, which I'll uh, be reading a couple of quotes of that towards the end of here. And, uh, and then we'll go from there. So to begin with, then, let's just go quickly through the scriptures. Okay, verse 5. It says that, uh, And it came to pass in the thirty and fourth year, in the first month, on the fourth day of the month, there arose a great storm, such as one as had never been known in all the land. Okay, so let's write down on our paper here, storm. Okay, you can just, just take a look at that. What I would suggest, maybe you, if you want to just double check it for yourself, if you have a pen there handy, just on the right hand side of that, just put a little chip mark right next to the, where it says storm. That way you know that you read it for yourself in the scriptures. Okay, so this is the 30 and 4th year. In the first month, on the 4th day of the month, there arose this great storm. Uh, verse 6, there also was a great and terrible tempest. So let's write that one down, tempest. There was a temp terrible thunder, so thunder's another one there. Insomuch that it did shake the whole earth as if it was about to divide asunder. So it shook the whole earth. Shake the whole earth. Okay, another one. And there was exceedingly sharp lightnings. So that's another one that they observed. Such had never been known in all the land. And the city of Zarahemla did take fire. So now we have a city that was actually burned. Okay, so cities, you can actually make that plural because there's several of them. Cities burned. The city of Moroni did sink into the depths of the sea. So that's another one. So cities sunk into a sea. Okay, then we have... Um, 
Behold, there was great and terrible destruction in the land northward. Behold, the, fa the face of the land was changed. Okay, that's another one. The face of the land was changed. Okay. Um, and it, because of the tempest and the whirlwinds, now that's an interesting one. So that's the one we haven't got. So whirlwinds, we need to add that one to it. Okay, oh, I missed one in verse 10 here. Uh, the, the earth was carried up upon the city of Moroniah. Okay, so earth was carried up on a city. So that's number eight on your handout there. So then we have, um, let's see, whirlwinds, and then we already have thunderings and lightnings and exceedingly great quaking of the whole earth. So again, we have a quaking of the whole earth again. Okay, the highways were broken up. So we can write that one down. That's number 12, highways broken up. Level roads were spoiled. Okay. So let's see, level roads were spoiled. Um, and many smooth places became rough. So that's 14 smooth places became rough. And there were some cities which remained, but the damage thereof was exceedingly great. Um, there were some which were, there were some who were carried away in the whirlwind. Okay. Um, we already talked about whirlwind. But I think it's just interesting to note they were actually carried away in the whirlwind. And whether they went, no man knoweth, say they were carried away. And thus the face of the whole earth became deformed. So this is the face of the whole earth deformed, right? Because of the tempests and thunderings and lightnings and quaking of the earth. Behold, let me see here, the rocks were rent in twain. So we have number 17, rocks rent in twain. Okay. And they were broken up on the face of the whole earth insomuch that they were found in broken fragments and in seams and in cracks upon all the face of the land. So that's number 18. Uh, seams and cracks upon the face of the land. Okay. Let's see. It came to pass that when the thunderings and lightnings and storm and tempests and quakings of the earth did cease, for behold, they did last for about the space of three hours. Some said it was a little bit more. Uh, but then, and then behold, there was darkness upon the face of the land. Okay, so darkness upon the face of the land. Now it came to pass, in verse 20 here, that there was thick darkness. So I actually added thick onto number 19 and put thick darkness on face of land. Okay. And so much that the inhabitants thereof who had not fallen could feel the vapor of darkness. That's number 20. Vapor of darkness. And there could be no light because of the darkness. Um, let's see. Neither candles, neither torches, neither could there be fire kindled with their fine and exceedingly dry wood, so there could not be any light at all. So they could not build a fire. Okay? So they had a difficult time building a fire. Or actually, not difficult. They basically couldn't do it, apparently. Um, and there was not any light seen, neither fire nor glimmer, neither the sun nor moon nor stars. Okay? So no sun, moon, or stars. That's number 22. For so great were the mists of darkness, that's number 23, mists of darkness, which were upon the face of the land. It came to pass that in, in the last of the space of three days, there was no light seen. There was no great morning and so forth. So there have three days of darkness, number 24. Okay. And then he talks about what was happening there. And then in, in chapter 9, now this is Christ actually speaking now. He says, uh, Woe, woe unto this people, woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they repent. Behold, the great city Zarahemla have I burned with fire. So then again, there's another, a city that was burned with fire. We already have that though. Behold, the great city Moroni have I caused to be sunk in the depths of the sea. Okay, so we have 
city buried in the depths of the sea. We already have that up, up, on, up on top here. And the inhabitants thereof, let's see, um, to hide their iniquities, let's see. And behold, the city of Gilgal have I caused to be sunk. So here we have city sunk. Okay. And the inhabitants thereof to be buried up in the depths of the earth. So we have city covered with earth. So city sunk and buried with earth. Okay. That's, uh, let's see, 26. I think 25 is supposed to be sunk. City sunk and 26 is actually cities buried in the depths of the earth. Um, let's see. Verse 7, and the city of Onaiha and the inhabitants thereof and the city of and all these different cities, he says, and waters have I caused to come up in the stead thereof. So water came up out of the earth, right? So waters came up. Behold the city of Gideonhai and uh, Gideamna, the city of Jake, Jacob and the city of uh, Gimgimo. Um, they have caused to be sunk and hills and valleys in the places thereof. So that's number 28. Okay, so these are uh, hills and valleys and the places thereof and the inhabitants thereof have I buried up in the depths of the earth to hide their wickedness and abominations from before my face. Um, and then verse 9 talks about all the cities that were burned with fire, which we already have in there. Okay, that pretty much wraps up the, uh, the overall situation here um, with the observations that happen. So I'm going to go ahead and close that. And now, what I want, you, what I want to do is to acquaint you a little bit with what happened in 1811 and 1812? Because I think there's some uh, very uh, analogous situations or parallelism here that I think you'll find is, is quite interesting. And rather than me telling you about it, I think it would be more fun to uh, show you a, a few clips here from a documentary called Earthquake in the Heartland by the History Channel. And so I'm going to go ahead and just play those. I won't play all of them for sake of time, but they're all available on the website at uh, bookofmormonevidence.org. If you go to the video gallery, you can, uh, you can watch all of these there. But here's a little bit of information about uh, the, this uh, earthquake sequence. earthquake ever to hit the lower 48 states was not the 6.7 Northridge quake in 1994, or the 6.9 Loma Prieta quake in 1989, or even the 7.8 San Francisco quake of 1906. But the series of three quakes which struck near St. Louis in 1811 and 1812. The earth didn't just shake, it discharged bizarre sand geysers, spewed strange vapors, made the Mississippi River run backwards, and sucked lakes dry. All of a sudden, the hand of God comes down and strikes right where you're at. For many, it seemed to be the end of the world. These people were scared to death. But it wasn't over. Thousands of aftershocks rattled the continent for five more months. They rang church bells in Boston. They rattled China in New York. They were felt in Detroit. They were felt in Washington, D.C. 
what if that same earthquake were to strike the Midwest today? The lives of at least 11 million Americans would be in peril. The problem today is that what was an unpopulated part of America is now very populated. It's happened before. It will happen again. Now, as we, as we look at these clips, I'm gonna stop them in a couple of places so that you can uh, check out a couple of things um, as we do this. Um, before we do this, though, I forgot to do one thing, and that is that um, I wanted to find out, you know, and, and Dr. Sorensen claims that the, that the only explanation for the things that happened around the time of Christ is volcanism, a volcanic eruption of some kind. And that has pretty much been the case now for since the beginning of the church. I mean, most people kind of assume that that's been the case. So what you're seeing today is some research that is, um, that is, that is very, very brand new and uh, that has some real uh, ramifications here. Now, one of the things that I always thought was kind of an interesting thing, if the, if the a destruction that happened around the time of Christ was in fact volcanic, there are some words that seem to be missing in the Book of Mormon that would be natural for someone trying to describe a volcanic eruption. For example, um, the word volcano. <laughs> okay. I mean, where in the Book of Mormon does it say anything about a volcano? If the Lord and his prophets were trying to explain a volcanic eruption of some kind, it makes some sense to me that they would have mentioned somewhere, at least in the text, the word volcano, which isn't there. There's a lot of other words that are not there. For example, there's no mention of ash or even clouds. There's no mention of an explosion or magma or rivers of, or lava or, or other things like this that are, which are typically associated with a uh, volcanic eruption. Okay, um, a couple of other things on there. Rumbling, falling rocks, rivers of fire. Um, those are all things that are not mentioned in the Book of Mormon, which is, I, I feel a little bit interesting if you consider that, uh, that those would be normal words that you would use for describing a volcanic eruption. So back to uh, the History Channel here. So uh, one of the uh, things that's interesting, now obviously we're talking about earthquake in the heartland. There's earthquakes. The first two videos are about the earthquakes. I think those are pretty much self-explanatory. I will, I will play this one though. All of us knocked out of bed. No the roar I thought would leave us dead. All you could hear was screams from people and animals. I don't know how we lived through it. There were no seismographs in 1811 to record the shock. But based on eyewitness accounts and destruction reports, seismologists believe the quake measured 8.0 on the Richter scale. Ten times stronger than the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. And the horror wasn't over. Frightened residents next confronted inexplicable large clouds of strange gas seeping from the earth. There was a sulfurous smell which came up out of the bowels of the earth. Escaping into the darkness, many people reported seeing bizarre flashing lights. The lights, the lights are not unique. Are not unique. There, are there are other earthquakes where people, people, people have said that said they've, they've seen, seen them. them. The, the explanation, explanation is that it has, has something, something to do with the 
squeezing of the rocks, they emit electrical signals. That's called the piezoelectric effect. After a night of terror, the sun came up. But dawn brought no relief from the tremors. There were rumblings and shakes all through the night. And then at 7 a.m. there was another shock. At least as hard as the first and maybe worse. And it kept going all through the day. The Many homes and barns that endured the 2 a.m. shaker now clattered to the ground from this massive aftershock. With daylight, people could see the earthquake destruction. December 1811. There were also these large fissures created. Sometimes they were four and five feet across it was and ten miles long. There are several accounts of buildings being swallowed up the fissures. Not only was the land in turmoil, the Mississippi River and lakes in the region were thrown from their banks. There were huge disruptions along the river valley, and the water of the Mississippi River was sloshed around like a bathtub. Banks caved in and took trees with them. Probably the most dramatic thing that happened was a huge piece of land was thrust up. And this piece of land crossed the river. And so all this water comes down the river and hits this impediment. It's like when you're in a bathtub and you push the water away from you. There's only one place it can come, towards you. And so a 30-foot high wall of water goes rushing back upstream. Incredibly, the mighty Mississippi flowed backwards. Churning against uplifted land, it retreated from its normal course, charging back upstream toward Illinois. At 11 a.m., there was yet another massive aftershock, estimated to be close to 8 on the Richter scale. The third huge seismic event in less than 12 hours. Hunters near the town of Little Prairie witnessed something shocking. They described the waters of the lake draining away in this earthquake. This area was described as a prairie. That part of the ground got lifted up in the aftershock such that this shallow lake just disappeared and they were there watching this go on. During these large aftershocks, the earth belched up immense quantities of sand and debris from unusual gaping fissures in the ground. Geologists call these strange geysers sand blowers. So we're talking about a lot of sand being blown up through the face of the earth, sometimes a hundred feet high, and of course it's bringing up whatever is down there. These sand volcanoes are the result of soil liquefaction. As the shaking, saturated earth compacts, pressure builds up until a vent or fissure is forced open. This brings the watery sand mixture blasting to the surface. These things can be 15, 20 feet deep. You can still see evidence uh, of these sand blows throughout the Boot Heel region of Missouri and down into the northeastern Arkansas. <coughs> 
Massive flooding along the river forced people to flee to higher ground. The town of Little Prairie, which was actually hit harder than New Madrid in the first day of earthquakes, was flooded and the town evacuated. These people were scared to death. They had just witnessed a calamitous event and they were moving across a landscape that they knew very well, but it had been so dramatically affected by the fissures. They would have been like a war zone. Amazingly, the largest shock was yet to come. Their hell had only begun. There's only one place it can come, back towards you. And so, 30-foot high The cities of Memphis and St. Louis lie upstream. Incredibly, the mighty Mississippi flowed backwards. Churning against uplifted land, it retreated from its normal course, charging back upstream toward Illinois. How tall was that water? 30-foot wall of water. In this book, they talk about at least three encampments of Native Americans which were along the riverbank that were never heard from again. The uh, Hopo Mound Builders, where do they typically have their cities? Close to the water, close to the rivers. If you have a 30-foot wall of water, that's about the same height as the tsunami that hit Japan. Now, of course, that has a lot more water behind it. Um, this is just the Mississippi as opposed to the ocean. But, uh, but you get an idea of the damage that that would have done um, for anybody living upstream in those areas right next to the river. So it would have been a, a, an incredible event for that. This next one is one that probably many of you may have never heard of before, but it's an interesting one. During these large aftershocks, the earth belched up immense quantities of sand and debris from unusual gaping fissures in the ground. Geologists call these strange geysers sand blows. So we're talking about a lot of sand being blown up through the face of the earth, sometimes a hundred feet high, and of course it's bringing up whatever is down there. These sand volcanoes are the result of soil liquefaction. As the shaking, saturated earth compacts, pressure builds up until a vent or fissure is forced open. This brings the watery sand mixture blasting to the surface. These things can be 15, 20 feet deep. You can still see evidence uh, of these sand blows throughout the boot heel region of Missouri and down into the northeastern Arkansas. <laughs> I help them out there a little bit. Okay, so uh, these sand blows, how deep did, did these sand blows get sometimes? 15 to 20 feet deep. Now if you consider that the average Hopewell home was about 7 to 9 feet tall, it would be buried under double that amount of sand. And, that, and these were some of the smaller ones. Um, there have been areas that have much, much deeper and greater extent than even those, and we'll talk about those here in just a few minutes. Um, here's another one I, th I thought was really interesting. This is um, in regard to the formation of lakes. Incredibly, 3,000 square miles of land east of the Mississippi River subsided, in some places by 10 feet. 
Enormous amounts of water from the Mississippi poured into the depressed area and formed a massive lake in just a few hours. These floodwaters covered a dense hardwood forest and killed all of the trees except the bald cypress, which thrive in water. This body of water, called Realfoot Lake, still exists today. Pick that goes on, but uh, for sake of time, we'll have to cut that off. But you can watch it on the website if, again if you want to. The whole the whole version is there. Think of that for just a second, though. How many miles? Three thousand square miles of land just sunk by ten feet. Again, how tall were the most of these Hopewell Mound Builder homes? Seven to nine feet tall. Formed lakes in just a matter of hours. According to this book, over ten different lakes formed in 1811 and 1812 in that sequence of earthquakes. Most of which are still there today. So, uh, now, in the Book of Mormon, it says that, they were, that there were cities that were buried in the depths of the sea. We have to understand that in the Hebrew, the word for sea can mean almost any body of water. That's the reason why we have small bodies of water, for example, like the, uh, like, um, uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee. Okay? Not very big. Smaller than Bear Lake, basically. But uh, then we also have the Mediterranean Sea, which, of course, is as big as, a, you know, it's about the size of an ocean, almost. Um, you can see in the Book of Mormon that the use of the words sea is quite interchangeable from when they would leave and, uh, and, and, and go. There's some, sometimes when the sea is clearly the ocean. Other times, the, the sea could be another, any other body of water, just like uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee or so forth. Okay, so, uh, so when it says cities being buried up in the depths of a sea, it doesn't necessarily mean an ocean. It means some large body of water. All right, so here we have, uh, this next one is about the, the seismic stuff. With three-dimensional geologic mapping technology, Roy Van Arsdale has modeled this subterranean world, hoping to find some answers. Well, we're compiling all kinds of information that we can get in terms of uh, deep information. This first screen is a digital elevation model, which is basically a rendition of the topography of the region. We have the Mississippi River floodplain in view there. And in fact, uh, there's a little gold star that shows where we're sitting right now in Memphis, Tennessee. Using sound waves, scientists determine the composition of the rocks and subsoil. A geological snapshot of the terrain under the Mississippi sediments. This second layer is five miles below the surface. We're looking at what's called the Precambrian surface in these multicolored depiction. And what you can also see is that the Precambrian geology is broken by faults. That's what these planes are that displace that surface. And there are earthquakes occurring along these two particular faults. Uh, these faults are oriented in such a way that it looks like they are trending towards Memphis and Shelby County, the star in the model. So we expect that they probably do pass beneath uh, where we are right now. Next, they plot onto the geography the locations of earthquakes in the region since 1995. There have been earthquakes occurring over a long period of time, but these are the earthquakes that are well located. 
With the earthquakes in this uh, pseudo 3D projection, uh, they look like a shotgun blast until you rotate the model. You can see that the earthquakes align themselves along a plane. What you're looking at now is the real foot fault. And the earthquakes are popping off along that fault plane. There it is, the killer fault people want to ignore. Pretty small, just 149 miles long compared to the San Andreas Fault that stretches more than 700 miles. But it packs a devastating punch because seismic waves travel easily through Midwest bedrock. Seismic intensity maps of the 1811 event show destructive shaking in each of these quakes, stretching for more than 350 miles from the epicenters on the New Madrid fault line. Let me just ask you a quick question. How well does that blanket the heartland of North America? <laughs> okay. If a similar event did in fact occur around the time of Christ for the Hopewell mound building civilization, this would have been literally under their feet. This was a made for the Hopewell destruction, if you will, um, that would be of, uh, of unprecedented significance. So we have uh, this very interesting aspect here. So let me see here. Now on your sheet, um, I, I uh, bypassed one here, so I want to go back to that for just a second here. Incredibly, 3,000 incredible body of body of water called Real Foot Lake still exists today. Pictures taken just 70 years ago during a seasonal drought show hundreds of stumps just below the surface. The bald cypress left in these waters tell the story of this instant lake. Well, bald cypress has a big root system called knees, and uh, they have a, a bulb that grows at the water level. Uh, one of the interesting aspects of the subsidence and why we know that it was three feet of subsidence is that after the earthquakes over the next 10 to 20 years, these trees grew a second bulbous area three feet above the previous one. Severe aftershocks continued for several months. By the time it was over, the region had endured more than 2,000 quakes and aftershocks, the most intense series of quakes ever experienced in North America. Massive flooding along the river forced people to flee to higher ground. The town of Little Prairie, which was actually hit harder than New Madrid in the first day of earthquakes, was flooded. And the town evacuated. These people were scared to death. They had just witnessed a calamitous event and they were moving across a landscape that they knew very well, but it had been so dramatically affected by the fissures. They would have been like a war. A war zone, that's what he said. <laughs> okay. So he said it was that the, uh, the landscape had been so dramatically affected by the fissures, it would be like a, a war zone. He said they were moving across a landscape that they knew very well, but it had been so changed okay, by this whole thing. And then uh, finally here, 
Oh, by the way, just out of curiosity, how many of you have actually seen a, a sand geyser happen before? It's very, very rare. And uh, most people have never seen it, um, either in a video or in, in real life. And so I, I, I have scoured the, uh, the uh, YouTube <laughs> channel and, uh, and actually have found one. And I, I'd like to play this for you because I think it gives you a sense of really what, was, what they're up against here as you see this. yards away. Got up about 40 to 45 feet high. you just witnessed for the first time then, those of you who have never seen one of those, you just witnessed what, it's, what it would have been like for one. And then as I show you some of the uh, photographs from the heartland of North America, you'll get an idea that, that uh, and also this sand here was very much uh, very light, kind of fluffy sand. The eyewitness accounts in 1811 and 1812 talked about water and sand being both ex expelled from the earth. You see essentially what happens and you have this massive shaking of the earth. It's very much similar to when you take gravel and sand and rocks and put it into a jar and then just kind of shake the jar and all of a sudden everything kind of compacts down in, right? It tightens up there, becomes more dense. Well, as it does this with the earth, it's condensing the, the overburdened pressure of the rocks and, and the sediments above are, are bearing now down harder on the aquifers. And that's what's causing this water underneath to become highly pressurized and then force its way up to the surface and blow these sand blows out along with water. And I'll show you some examples of that here in just a minute. By the way, from the, the information, there's, there's precious little information about that sand blow that happened over there in Saudi Arabia. Um, my understanding is, is that it lasted about 45 minutes and put down about two feet of sand. So you get an idea, at least uh, somewhat of an idea, of uh, what it would take to put down 15 to 20 feet of sand um, and, you know, and how much time that might have taken. Scientists are investigating the past in the hope of giving people some warning before the imminent mega-disaster. Scattered across the New Madrid zone, there are scars of past seismic eruptions. 
Sand blows that formed during the 1811-1812 quakes still dot the landscape and make it difficult to grow a solid field of cotton. The sand blows are very common, especially in the heart of the New Madrid seismic zone, close to the New Madrid faults. Paleoseismologist Marticia Tuttle digs into sand blows, searching for clues as to the frequency of the past quakes. I started working in the New Madrid seismic zone in 1992, and at the time the conventional wisdom was that no prior New Madrid events had occurred for 10,000 years. Today, Professor Tuttle joins archaeologist Marion Haynes to excavate a trench in the middle of a cotton field. Digging into the soil, they uncover a very large sand blow. The sand blow starts here. It's thin. It's getting thicker. The buried soil is about four feet deep. Here's another beautiful vent area. The sand blow's thinning, and it ends about there. This sand blow is more than 63 feet wide on the surface. The exact magnitude of the 1811-1812 events is debatable, but the effects that it had in the New Madrid seismic zone are irrefutable. And come to the field and see the, the, the ground failure that occurred, the sand blows that formed, and you'll see that these were no small events. This would be the plow zone, and that's an agricultural horizon resulting from plowing of the fields. This sand blow formed in 1811-1812 because there's essentially no soil left above it. The plowing of the fields has destroyed what little soil had developed. And it takes time to develop a soil. Professor Tuttle suspects there may be deeper prehistoric sand blows that may hold evidence of earlier quakes. To locate older sites, she brings in a ground-penetrating radar specialist. After roping off a grid, Jamie drags the radar antenna over the ground. The radar measures soil resistance and produces this image of the subterranean world. Professor Tuttle suspects these white areas are sand blows. Excavating at this site, she finds a very unusual pattern in this sand blow. Soil with Native American artifacts, a layer known as an occupation horizon. And that, folks, is where it's going to get real interesting. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, I'm going to close this up here for just a second. Trying to make sure this is centered up here. Okay, so this is the, uh, the New Madrid area, just to kind of give you an idea. Again, it uh, pretty much uh, blankets the heartland of North America, as you can see there. Um, this is New Madrid. This is the actual site where the epicenter of these earthquakes were. By the way, it didn't really say specifically, but there were three earthquakes that were 8.0 magnitude or greater. Over a five-month period, there were over 2,000 earthquakes. It was like the earth just almost was in continual movement underneath this, uh, this area for five months. 
Um, now, New Madrid, this is, the, this is the little pier that they built. This is actually the levee now that is, as it exists. This is the river level. This is the levee up here. Um, the town of New Madrid, Missouri, as it existed in 1811 and 1812, was about right in here. Okay? This is looking off the pier. New Madrid, Missouri was right here back in 1811 and 1812. This next uh, photograph is actually from, uh, this, is, this is a photograph of Real Foot Lake, the lake that was formed in 1811 and 1812 in just a few hours. Just to give you an idea of the size of this, uh, here we have a little bit uh, higher view, so you can see this lake goes on and on. This is not a small little lake uh, or, or small pond. This, is, this, this would be easily considered to be a sea in Book of Mormon time frames. I mean, when, when, if you compare this with like the Sea of Galilee, um, it's many, many times bigger than that. Okay, so here's uh, Real Foot Lake. Here it is again. Real Foot Lake. You can still see uh, trees and so forth here. During certain seasons of the year when the lake's low, you can actually see some of the original trees where they have uh, been broken off. Okay, um, this is actually a, a photograph that was taken uh, about 15 years ago as a slide, actually. That's why weird, weird discoloration up here. But uh, here's where they were trying to plant crops. Now, you have to remember something. This is 1811 and 1812. It's been 200 years since this, this event occurred. And even yet today, there are areas, many areas, in the, uh, the, the, the Boot Hill region there of, uh, of Missouri that still will not support vegetation. Still can't grow a crop on it because so much sand was literally just deposited out of these geysers, what they called in the movie, they actually called them sand volcanoes, and out onto the surface of the land. So here we have an example of that. Now this is a couple of things you can see right over here. Um, there's, there are a line of six of these gigantic silos right? Big uh, granary silos. Um, get an idea of how big this sand blow here is. And then that's not to even mention, look at it way out here. Okay, this is a big commercial building right there as well. By the way, these, uh, these slides here are, are, from the, uh, are from Dr. David Stewart, who is the, one of the, the co-author of this book that I've been mentioning. Here you can actually see how the, the uh, liquefaction in the water features. As the sand came up, so did water, and you can actually see how that has, has played across the landscape um, as, it, as it belched up out of the earth and then pulsed out and then, and then spread around on the surface of the earth here. And you can see these whole areas here are covered with this. Here's a little bit uh, different shot of another area here. You get some homes in here. And you can see these, these, uh, these features here, they're clearly where this was running across the, the surface of the earth at, one, at some point in time, whenever this happened. Now here's a subdivision here. Look at, they've all got nice green lawns. Anybody want to take a guess why they have nice green lawns there? They trucked in the topsoil, <laughs> okay? Now remember that uh, the, the trench that Marticia Tuttle, the paleoseismologist in the film, when she was doing a, a dig on that trench, how, how big was that particular sand blow that she's talked about? 60 feet, right? This one right here is, if you see, most homes are at least 60 feet long. Most, of, most homes are quite a bit longer than that. But uh, let's just say that that was 60 feet. This one is at least double that distance. That's a 120 foot one. The one that's, that Marticia Tuttle was excavating in that cotton field is actually 
it's so small that it wouldn't even it's not even wouldn't even show up on this one. I mean, basically, you, you see these other ones here. They are much much larger, um, and it just goes off into the distance here. Okay, you can see additional ideas here from an airplane. What it looks like even today. Okay, well again, looking out into the distance here. Now this one is very interesting. You have a city basically up here. I don't know if you can see that city pretty well. And you have a big industrial complex here. And then you have these gigantic radial features in the sand blows coming out here. Okay, now this is from an airplane, but this is from satellite. These are not small structures, folks. They think that there was a, there was a, uh, a, a place where it was coming out here, pulsing out. It would pulse and then come out and then spread out over the face of the land. And then another pulse would happen. It would come up and then spread out again and it caused these radial features to happen around the edges of this, of this area here. Okay, and if you get an idea, these are in fact uh, entire parcels of land. This, this is one parcel of land right here. Okay, you get an idea of, this, of the magnitude of these uh, massive things that happened in 18... They think that this was 1811 and 1812. They're not sure exactly on this one. Okay, and e even now, today, there's still... Some of these areas have chasms that are still... That this picture was taken about uh, 15 years ago. And, uh, and still, even today, there are some of these chasms are still uh, pros certain problems for the, for the residents of the area. You have to understand something about this. This area is underlain by 3,000 feet of sediments. Okay? And, uh, and so it's a, it's a pretty unstable environment when it comes down to it. Okay, then we have uh, here from USGS. This is the New Madrid Seismic Zone here. This is the primary fault here. There's a secondary one right here, which you saw in the film. There's two of them. There's actually also one that goes up here into Indiana which is interesting because that one actually um, just went off here about three months ago. They had about a four, I think it was a 4.1 or 4.2, not a really big one, but it's you know, one that would certainly rumble, rumble your house if you were next to it. Ron? Yes? I'm just curious, where's the proximity of uh, Jackson County, Missouri to all of this? Uh, Jackson County, Missouri is over, is over here. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's not, it's not in this general, it's, it's, basically this is St. Louis, you have to go straight across the state and Kansas City is right there. Adam on Diamond and that area is right up in here. Okay. Now this is where it gets more interesting, at least for me. Because uh, the things that we've, we've looked at so far are, uh, are very interesting. I'm going to come back to this here in just a second. And, uh, and go to... A, uh, but let's go to, the, to our sheet here now for a second. If you pull your sheets out there. And let's just start going through. And uh, I could get someone to, to... I need a pen here. One second. Okay, now based on what we've just watched here, let's take a look and see what we can cross off now. Okay, so we haven't seen anything as far as a storm or tempest or... Uh, we did, we, they did mention thunder. Remember the thunder that he talked about there. Thunder, the roar of a thunder. So on your, on your left-hand side next to the three, I got a little circle there. Just put, it, put a little cross through that or, or a little check through there so we can start to... Because what we're going to do is we're going to see how closely this observ these observations uh, match the Book of Mormon. Okay? So obviously we can, we can cross off number four or, or put a check by number four, shook the whole earth. 
right? They talked about lightning, not so much lightnings, but they talked about the, uh, the strange lights. You remember that? The piezoelectric effect that was going on. Let's just put a question mark next to lightnings, though, for a second right now. Okay, then we have uh, cities burned. Didn't mention anything about cities being burned there. Okay, cities sunk into a sea. Okay, I think we could, we could pretty much put that one down. If there was a city anywhere in those areas where these lakes formed, there would be cities that were sunk into the depths of a sea in that case. How about earth carried up upon a city? Now that's an interesting one. I, I, I love the phraseology of that. Earth carried up onto a city. How does a volcano do that? Usually volcanoes have material that comes down off of the mountain and then buries the cities. Okay? But anyway, so we have earth carried up, up, up upon a city. The uh, whole face of the land changed. If you remember that, he says it was like a war zone. Now he said the face of the land changed. I have that, that's probably one of the biggest questions I get about with this, with this uh, information, this presentation is, is, well, didn't this change everything? I've, had, I've seen a lot of people, there's a, a huge amount of people who said, well, at the time of Christ, everything changed. So there's no hope that we'll ever be able to figure out the geography. Let me just address that for just a half a second here, though, because it's important that, uh, to realize there was at least three or four other civilizations who had writing at the time of Christ. And yet, none of them mentioned three days of darkness or any of these other calamitous events like the, like the Nephites did. In fact, the only thing that we really know for sure is there was an earthquake over in the Old World, in Jerusalem, because what happened? It caused the veil in the temple to be rent in twain, right? So we know that there was a volcano, not a volcano, <laughs> there was an earthquake um, over there, okay? But it doesn't mention anything about three days of darkness, does it? Okay, the, uh, the, the New Testament accounts don't mention anything about that. And neither do any of these other civilizations. Nor were there any mention of major tsunamis, which would have, of course, occurred had continents started to change and move around. The, uh, the coastlines of North America, for example, have not changed any time in the, in the last two or 3,000 years. So uh, that, that's another indication that we're not talking about the entire Earth and continents sliding around on the Earth. We're talking about really a more localized event. How bad was the destruction? Well, it was bad enough that it burned the city of Zarahemla, but it wasn't so bad that they didn't know exactly where the city of Zarahemla was to rebuild it. It didn't destroy the temple in Bountiful, apparently, because they met there a year later, right? After the three days of darkness, a lot of people don't realize this either, but after the three days of darkness, how long was it before Christ actually came and visited them? It was a year after. The destruction happened in the beginning of the year. And then it says, and in the end of the year was when they were all marveling at what had happened and the changes in the land and so forth. And that's when Christ came to the temple in Bountiful. Now one thing that we probably ought to talk about, in fact, I'll, I'll just go ahead and talk about it right now. And that is timing of this. I just think it's really apropos, especially after what has happened in the last two weeks in the heartland of North America from a weather standpoint. You see, it talks about in the, in the Book of Mormon, you remember how it said that it was on the, on the first month, on the fourth day of the month, there arose this great storm, this terrible tempest with whirlwinds that carried people away. What do we know about Nephi calendaring? 
But what we do know for doesn't always fit on the same day in the Gregor in our Gregorian calendar, okay, because it's it's different because it's a, based on the moon, it's a lunar thing. Okay, well, Christ celebrated the Passover, then he was crucified, and then the destruction happened over here in the New World, right? If that's the case, and the Nephite said it was the first month on the fourth day of the month, then what does that tell you about Nephite calendaring? <coughs> the Nephite calendar started sometime in April, right? Because April is typically when the Passover is celebrated, sometime in April. Let me just ask you a quick question. Um, is there any parallels to big storms with massive uh, tornadoes or whirlwinds happening in the heartland of North America in April? You see how sometimes when you have the geography right, folks, everything just falls in place. Because you have to understand that it talks about whirlwinds. The, 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 the obvious answer to that is that those are talking about tornadoes. There are some that have argued that, that, that whirlwinds don't mean tornadoes, but it's, it actually specifies between tempests and tornadoes or, or whirlwinds. And certainly, I, my personal feeling is, is that the Lord knows exactly what a tornado was and, and so forth and what a whirlwind is. <laughs> anyway, and he used those terms here, or well, the, the prophets used those terms, which were the terms that they were, they were used to. And it's pretty simple. If you look up in the uh, dictionaries and so forth, you look up tornado or whirlwind, they're interchangeable pretty much. Okay, so, uh, and also, and it talks about people being carried away in the whirlwinds. Think about that. That's about the only really natural phenomenon that deals with, with uh, climate kind of things, or weather, that actually could literally lift somebody up off the ground and just, and they're gone. Now, hurricanes blow hard across, but they usually blow you into something that's on the ground. But whirlwinds, pick you up and you're just flying. Now hurricanes blow hard across but they usually blow you into something that's on the ground. But whirlwinds pick you up and you're just flying. Okay, so, uh, so I just think that's really interesting that here we have, it was April of the year 34 when all of a sudden this gigantic storm happens. Let's just uh, go back up to the top here for a second. Does anybody think it would be difficult for the Lord to cause a storm to happen about the same time as these earthquakes happen? Especially when it's storm season in North America in April. Okay? So let's just, let's just again, this is kind of an assumption here, but let's just assume that the Lord caused a storm to happen about the same time as his crucifixion. So we can cross off now storm up at the top, number one. And tempest, which of course is, a, is, is fierce winds, if you look at it. I've got the uh, scriptures on that if you'd like to check it out. And of course, any storm that has fierce winds and, and uh, tornadoes is going to have lightning and, and associated with it. So there's number five. Okay? Now, uh, number nine says the whole face of the land was changed. We're I was talking about that. The bottom line is, is folks, is that they rebuilt cities where they knew others where they, where they were. Some cities actually were uh, buried up in the land. And of course, they wouldn't know where those cities were necessarily. Um, but bottom line is, is it talks about the whole face of the land being changed. It's, I find it just really interesting that he said that uh, the familiar landscape was dramatically affected. It became like a war zone. I think we can pretty much then put a little check by number nine. The face of the land was changed. 
Um, whirlwinds, number 10, certainly that works. Quaking of the whole earth, certainly that works, number 11. Highways broken up, okay? I think that that and the uh, level land spoiled and the, and the smooth places becoming rough are all kind of interrelated to each other. Basically, remember how a, a huge section of land just was heaved up and caused the Mississippi River to flow backwards? Okay, well, we're, that's what we're talking about. Smooth places becoming rough, level land spoiled. Um, city sunk, okay? Gonna get back to that one here in just a second here. Uh, number 16, face of the whole earth deformed. Now I find that, that that's a, another difficult one. There's another scripture in the Book of Mormon that we already talked about just at the, in the first presentation on the sizes of the uh, different uh, areas, um, where it says that the people did, uh, they covered the face of the whole earth. Does anybody really believe that the Nephites were actually covering all of Africa, all of Asia, all of Russia, all of Europe, okay, all of Southeast Asia? I mean, obviously that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about the earth as they know it their lands. Okay, so when you talk about the face of the whole earth being deformed, it's their lands being deformed. The places where they live. Okay, so I think we can check that one off. Rocks rent in twain, certainly we can check that one off. Seams and cracks upon the face of the land. Okay, absolutely. Uh, thick darkness on the face of the land. No, they didn't mention that one. Or vapor of darkness, didn't mention that one. Could not build fires, they didn't mention that one. Um, they had the mist of darkness, didn't mention that. Three days of darkness, no. 25, we're going to get back to that here in just a second here. The city's covered with earth. C uh, cities buried in the depths of the earth, uh, number 26. Water came up out of the earth, we can check that one off. Okay, that one was actually observed. The sand blows and, the, and so forth coming up and causing these uh, things to happen. And hills and valleys put in place of cities. Um, I think we can check that one off again because of the the uh, unevenness, and I mean, you have 3,000 square miles just subsided. Well, other places were raised up, and then other places were buried under the sand blows, and so forth. Okay, so they're trying to describe this to us, but we have still several that we haven't gotten back to yet, so let's talk about that for just a second. This is uh, Marticia Tuttle, who is the recognized expert on uh, paleoseismology of the New Madrid region. She's the one that was in the film. Um, she actually has done the most extensive research in this area, although she'll be the first to admit that this is just in this very infancy. But uh, bottom line is, is that uh, she has on her website, you can go to her website and download a PowerPoint that she has placed on her website. And I have, have taken about three slides from that PowerPoint. I, I'd recommend that you go and check it out. Okay? But uh, here we have in the PowerPoint, she talks about first generation um, stuff. This is from her, her ground penetrating radar studies that they did. Had two sets of compound sand blows uh, separated by a base of late archaic mound, uh, of a late archaic mound. Radiocarbon dating indicates they formed about 2350 years before Christ, plus or minus 200 years. Now in the film, they actually, she actually talks about an event that happened around 300 AD. And that's what she's talking about here. In her, uh, in her PowerPoint, she this is second generation, she said the sand blow with soil development that buries a Native American occupation horizon. Radiocarbon dating artifact analysis indicates it formed in 300 AD plus or minus 200 years. That, folks, you realize that gives you a 400 year window here, right? Now where did they come up with this? Well, I found out the reason why is because the artifacts that were buried under the sand blow 
were guess what? They were Hopewell artifacts. Yeah. Hopewell artifacts. So they know the dating because they know when the Hopewell were around in this area. Okay, now the carbon dating didn't match exactly, it was a little bit older than that. But the bottom line is, is that she put down 380 plus or minus 200 years. Folks, how close do we have to get here? If you subtract 200 years off of 300, what do you have? 100 AD. When was the destruction around the time of, when, the destruction at the time of Christ in the Book of Mormon? 34 AD. That's only 60, what's uh, 66 years or something, isn't it? Do the math. Folks, that, I believe, is the actual event that was witnessed by Book of Mormon prophets in the heartland of North America. And now we have the physical evidence that shows that it in fact did bury cities. A occupation horizon with Native American artifacts buried underneath the sand blow. She goes on to say here, let me pull that over just a little bit so you can see it. She says, a sand blow that formed in 300 AD plus or minus 200 years was interpreted to be the result of a New Madrid earthquake on the basis of its large size and age similarity with two other uh, sand blows. Okay? And then down here at the bottom it says, um, given its size, see if I can get this, this may not fit on the screen here very well. I'll just read it. Given its size, the second generation sand blow may have formed as a result of a very large New Madrid earthquake. If so, there should be, be other sand blows of this age. Either they have not yet been found and dated or the age of the sand blow at Briquette has been misinterpreted. Um, what she's saying is, is that, that uh, this, because of its size, there's going to be other ones. But she doesn't have the money, the funding, to go out and start searching these, old, these areas. This, you know, when you start talking about ground penetrating radar and so forth, it becomes a lot more expensive to do that. And then also you have to go deeper to get down into those areas. Um, and so, but she's saying that, uh, you know, that this could be, so even she is questioning somewhat the age. What they do know is that the artifacts are Hopewell. And it was somewhere in that time frame when there was a massive New Madrid type earthquake that happened right in the heartland of North America and buried some, under, some areas under as much as 40 feet of sand covering over 75 square miles. Single blows, sand blows. So, let's go back to our sheet here for just a second. We talked about cities being sunk. Okay, but we can go ahead and cross that one off. They didn't say what they were sunk in. But we have 3,000 square miles of land that just sank 10 feet. So cities may have been sunk into that or in the chasms. Um, number 25 says cities were covered with earth and cities buried in the depths of the earth. I think we can cross both of those off here. All right, so we're down to uh, this, this, next, the, this next stuff. The cities being burned and thick darkness on the face of the land. And frankly, I was really at a loss for the last two years I really wondered how I, I've done a lot of research on earthquakes for a natural sciences textbook project I've been involved with for, some, for a number of years and um, 
I've never seen anybody describe darkness as a result of some earthquakes. But you know, I just thought, well, if it really did happen here, the information will come. It's just a matter of time. And uh, so I... Uh, let's see here. So what happened was, I was actually with a, uh, with a, a, a tour group and one of the things that I wanted to do is I want, when, when we do our tours, we try to cover a lot of bases in this uh, time frame. It's usually about a two-week time frame. We go all the way from Palmyra, New York. We go all the way through the heartland of North America. We cover all the, the church history sites. And then we also go and we see these sites. Because if this geography is correct, folks, church history and Book of Mormon history are literally on the same sacred ground. And if that's the case, then we can go to these places. So we actually uh, took our tour group and we went down to New Madrid, Missouri. And in New Madrid, Missouri, by the way, this is, this is one of the pages from the new picture book. If, you, if you're not aware of that, that's, that's part of the reason why this conference has been done quite a bit later than we have had them in the past. Because in the last five months, I've been literally sequestered myself in my office <laughs> to try to get for about five months literally about 14, 15 hours a day, six days a week, trying to get this uh, picture book done. It's, it's a massive project. It's been huge. But um, I think you'll find it to be one of, the, one of the, the, the best tools that you'll have to be able to learn more about this and also share with other folks. Because it's got you know, 212 pages. Every page is full color process. It's, it's really going to be nice uh, heirloom quality book. But, but the uh, but bottom line is, is that we were with the tour group here. So I'm going to go to the next page here. This is the, the uh, New Madrid Earthquake Museum in New Madrid, Missouri. Okay, they've now, this is the levee now. The old town is on the other side of the levee in the river. Now they've, they've rebuilt the town over here. Okay, and uh, so we're with the tour group. And I happened to be um, walking in. And most, of, most of the folks on the tour actually went to the displays and so forth. And I went right for the bookshelves. <laughs> okay. Because in the back of my mind for the last two years, been just driving me nuts. How do you count for three days of darkness? And frankly, I had no answer. And so I wanted to go and find out as much as I could about this as I'm doing my research. And, uh, and so I went to the bookshelves, and the biggest, thickest book that they had on the shelf was this one. It's by uh, Dr. David Stewart and Dr. Ray Knox. Neither one of these are LDS. Okay, and they have together spent about 60 years and they are the experts on 1811, 1812 earthquakes. They have gathered newspaper articles, um, writings from different people's journals, correspondence and letters, and so forth. All first-hand accounts. They've gone out to all these areas. They know these places by heart. Okay, and they 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 produce this massive book. Okay, it's about uh, 250 something, 260 pages. All black and white, though. You can see here. Well, that and all, all my yellow marks and everything in here. This thing has got so many marks in it. <laughs> okay. All right. But so I picked up this book, and I just happened to be kind of just rifling through it like this. And all of a sudden, it opened up to this page right here. Page 237. And I looked down at this, and I read it, and it says, Earthquake smog. I went, oh, earthquake smog? Has anybody here ever heard of earthquake smog? So I started reading it. I got through about the first two paragraphs. And I just closed the book. 
walked up and paid my 40 bucks for the book. I'm going to read some of these, some of these uh, quotes for you. Um, by the way, this is, uh, just for information's sake, this is, the, uh, this is the Earthquake in the Heartland documentary. Um, we just got a shipment of them in. Um, at, at the History Channel, they're $24.95, basically $25. Bucks. Um, we have them out here today for $15, so $10 bucks less than you can get them from the History Channel if you'd like to pick up a, a copy of that. Um, as well, but uh, anyway, so back to this is the next page in the, in the, the new picture book. I don't know if you can read that or not, but, uh, but all these quotes that I'm going to read you here are in the book. Let me just uh, share with you a little bit of this information here. This is the reason why I decided that I had to have this book, and I'm really grateful that I did because as you can see, there's just tons of uh, information in here. It says, quote, during the, during the duration of the disturbances and throughout the New Madrid region, People reported the darkening of the skies following the largest shocks. Clear nights became overcast, while clear days became dark and gloomy. Eliza Bryan described her family's experience on December the 16th when the first shock struck. Quote, My ma tried to light the lamps, but the darkness was so dense they didn't help at all. Unquote. She also spoke of, quote the, quote, the awful darkness of the atmosphere, unquote, during some of the daylight shocks. Godfrey Lesur said that following the severe shocks, quote, a dense black cloud of vapor overshadowed the land, unquote. Folks, I'm not making this stuff up. These are first-hand accounts, 1811 and 1812. You have to remember, that is before Joseph Smith had even had the first vision yet. So there's no way that the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith's account could have, have anything to do with what these people wrote in their journals. And yet the words are almost exact same as those described by the prophets in the Book of Mormon. Another resident of New Madrid said that when a large shock occurred, quote, the air would be clear at first, but in five minutes it would become very black, and this darkness returned at each successive shock, unquote. Another New Madrid observer noted that, quote, get this one, a vapor seemed to impregnate the atmosphere, had a disagreeable smell, and produced difficulty of respiration, unquote. Think of that for just a second here. Let's go back to our sheet. Okay. Up in the top, number six. See, anti-Mormons have actually gotten a hold of this uh, little, little, little tidbit of information. I, I, and I, I actually even wondered about it just briefly as a child, as my family would, would uh, read the scriptures in the morning, how it was that you have cities that were completely destroyed by fire, but yet you have, in another situation, you have uh, number 21, you have, they claim that they couldn't build a fire even with their best wood. Anti-Mormons have said, see, Joseph Smith got a little confused as he was making this stuff up. Okay? Because one hand, can't build a fire, other hand, entire cities leveled by fire. Which is it? 
Well, when you read that one, you realize it produced a, it, a uh, vapor seemed to impregnate the atmosphere, it had a disagreeable smell, it produced difficulty of respiration. As you saw in the film, remember it had a, they had gases, strange gases that came up out of the earth. Again, you have to realize you're talking about 3,000 feet of sediments underneath the Mississippi River Valley. In those sediments is all this organic material, which is decomposing, and of course when it's decomposing, what's it giving off? Gases. Different kinds of gases depending on what is decomposing. Some of the gases may be like methane gas, for example. What, what happens if all of a sudden you have the earth just open up this chasm and it belches out this, these, this gas from underneath these, and these sediments? What's it going to do if you have a little campfire going on up here? You're going to have a conflagration is what you're going to have. All this methane gas coming out and it catches on fire. I don't, I don't know that it would explode because you have, in order for an explosion you'd have to have some compression of some kind. But this is basically, it could just be massive fire going on. In other places, they talked about having a sulfurous smell, right? Well, if you have sulfurous kind of gases, those are not nearly as flammable. But they're also typically heavier than air. So as those things are expelled out of the bowels of the earth, now they come up and then they are heavier than air, so they start to sink back down towards the surface. What's it going to do to the oxygen content in the air in those areas? You see, the natural oxygen content in, the, in our atmosphere is 21%. But to maintain a flame, you have to have about 16%. You can't have combustion if you go below 16% oxygen in the air. If you have this sulfurous material that comes up and it, and it comes back down because it's heavier than air and it sticks along the ground, you're literally not going to be able to build a fire, even if you're the best fire builder, boy scout, eagle scout guy there is, <laughs> okay? Because there's simply not enough oxygen for combustion to happen. But yet people can live down to about 10% oxygen. You just have to breathe a lot harder. They say about between 10 and 12% oxygen content, you'll start getting dizzy, okay? Some dizziness will happen. You get below about 10% and pretty soon you're going to die. But there's a range in there of about 3 or 4% oxygen level where people could actually be alive. It's like she talked about, they had difficulty of respiration, right? They could still be alive, but not enough oxygen to be able to light a fire. How would Joseph Smith have known this when he translated the Book of Mormon? couple other quick things here. A minister living near Cape Girardeau reported that from December the 16th until December the 19th, how many days is that folks? December 16th to December 19th. Between three and four days, okay, depending on when they started that and so forth. Quote, the sun, moon, and stars were concealed by a mist and a fog which dropped like a heavy dew, unquote. Three days of darkness witnessed by, the eyewitness, by, by a minister in Cape Girardeau. It's about 80 miles to the north. Um, and finally, uh, the naturalist John James Audubon, from the start of the Audubon Society, right? The 23rd of 1812, when one of the largest of the New Madrid earthquakes hit. At this location, he would have been about 18 miles due east of New Madrid, about 25 miles from the epicenter. 
between Point Pleasant and Little Prairie, Missouri. The bluffs are 150 to 200 feet high above the river at that location, and the visibility on a clear day is at least 40 miles. Audubon was looking toward the west in the direction of New Madrid and Point Pleasant at the time, and he wrote, quote, I saw a sudden and strange darkness rising from the western horizon and heard what I imagined to be the distant rumbling of a violent tornado, unquote. You can't make this stuff up. It's, it's amazing. So if we go back to our list, number six, cities burned. That certainly could have happened if you had a methane gas expelled um, from there into the area. So I think we can cross that one off. Okay? Number 19, thick darkness on the face of the land. It's exactly as they described it. Vapor of darkness, exactly as they described it. Could not build a fire. They didn't say that specifically. Okay, but, uh, but you get the impression that there was the, the, they, they were, the, the respiration thing was having a difficulty. Um, I'm going to put a question mark by that one. Um, number 22, no sun, moon, or stars. That's a direct quote. Mists of darkness, exactly. Three days of darkness, number 24. That basically leaves us with one question mark, and that is number 21, could not build a fire. They didn't mention that in the book, although I haven't done... I haven't finished reading the book yet, so maybe that would be something that might go. Oh, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They couldn't light the lamps. <laughs> Should we read that one again? <laughs> all right. I think we, we said, Herma tried to light the lamps, but they didn't help at all. Now, I'm not sure if that means that they, she wasn't able to light them or the light just didn't do anything. But the bottom line is, folks... Twenty-eight out of twenty-eight, and a similar event happening right at the right, right at the time of Christ, basically. Again, I don't think Joseph Smith could have been make, making this stuff up. I think the evidence is going to continue to build. I think this is pretty much irrefutable evidence that what Dr. John Sorensen claims is the only explanation for the destruction that happened around the time of Christ was a volcanic eruption can now be laid to rest. 28 for 28. I don't think you can get that close if you try to go to a volcanic eruption. And I don't know if there was any volcanic eruptions that happened in, in Mesoamerica exactly at the time of, or right around that time of Christ. And do we have any evidence for cities actually being buried? As we do here in North America, not only cities being buried, but being buried by the right people in the right place at the right time with the right DNA. <laughs> okay. So I think we have a pretty strong case here for the Book of Mormon. And, uh, and again, my, my, my hope is, is that as we uh, continue to, uh, to explore this information, that you will continue to be excited about opening up that book. Okay, we're going a little bit. I've gone about 50 minutes over. Actually, I'm kind of surprised that that's as close as it is. So that's good. <laughs> All right. Um, I just I just want to uh, just just mention one last thing, and that is that um, in doing this research, I'm just amazed. I had no idea how you would ever possibly explain three days of darkness from a bunch of earthquakes. But here we have ten eyewitness accounts from 1811 and 1812. 
And if, a, if the Book of Mormon is in fact a type and shadow of the things of our day, I often wonder if a similar event might be what clears the Missouri area prior to the second coming of Christ. Many of you probably have heard of the Yellow Dog Prophecy. I don't know if many of you know that the, uh, that the saints actually called the Missourians yellow dogs. <laughs> because they would paint their faces black and come in the dead of night to attack women and children and families. But there's, there is a prophecy about that. And I won't go into the details on that. But the bottom line is, is folks, I hope you can see that the evidence just continues to mount in favor of the Book of Mormon. It's not just in favor of the Heartland model. I just feel like it's just a privilege to have been stumbled onto some of this information and have good men like Wayne May and, and Bruce Porter that have come from this from different angles and have seen that this all makes sense if you put it in the promised land of North America. So uh, anyway, I uh, thank you for being here. We're going to, uh, to um, break for dinner. We'll be starting at 7 o'clock, and I'll be uh, doing the, the uh, final presentation of the evening, which is on Book of Mormon, Metallurgy, the Case for Ores, Smelting and Swords in America's Heartland. Believe me, you don't want to miss this. Thanks, folks, and we'll see you at 7 o'clock. You can find the new virtual expo at bookofmormonevidencestreaming.com. We advertise 60 new videos, but actually almost double that amount, so you'll have plenty of inspiration to carry you through the fall and into the holiday season. Don't miss out on more than 110 new videos now in our library. Special guest speakers are Glenn Beck, David Barton and Tim Ballard. You'll have access for three whole months as well as receiving two bonuses that will offset your complete subscription cost. The first is The Destruction of Christ's Death, which is a two-hour streaming video by Rod Meldrum, which is a $20 value, as well as his new 40-page ebook called Prophecies and Promises. What did Joseph know? That's a $15 value. We're excited for you to join us.